Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger. And today we are going to be talking about managing code for multiple apps and teams. Uh, big, pretty big subject and should be getting into some details on that, that uh, hopefully we'll have some answers that we can make some decisions on managing massive amounts of code and, and bigger teams. So let's get right at it. Uh, our panelists on today's show, we've got Austin McDaniel joining us. Austin, what is going on? How's it going, everyone? Happy Tuesday. It's always like a big reveal, but like I feel like maybe our viewers are now used to what's going to be under the pan ahead. So you need to like frost your tips on your hair or something. Do something different. Yeah, that would be very '90s of me. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. And uh, Bonnie Brennan is joining us today. Bonnie, how's it going? It's awesome. I'm happy to be here. I feel like one of the cool kids. And actually, Austin, I was shopping with my daughter Sam uh, a couple days ago. And they had there. We found like all these big animal heads in the store, and she was like trying to convince me to buy her one just so she could be like you. But not the panda. She wanted the unicorn head. She was like, "Yeah, you know that guy with the panda head?" And I was like, "Yes, honey, I know that guy with the panda head. Everybody knows that guy." It's <laughs> bad news. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> well, she thought you were pretty cool, so according to her, that's a good thing. There you go. The word's getting out on the street, so you're becoming famous. So. Now you're stuck with the panda forever. So, <laughs> all right, we got uh, Mike Brocky with us. Mike, what's going on? Not too much. I'm just plotting how I can get the teenage girl market back from Austin. <laughs> Keep plotting. Keep plotting. Uh, our guest today, we got Gleb joining us. Gleb, how's it going? Oh, excellent. Happy to be here. We are happy to have you. And uh, Jeff's joining us as well. Jeff, how's it going? Going well. How are you doing today, Mr. Schwartzbrenberger? I'm I'm doing well. See, you're still working on my last name. That's okay. Yeah, uh, it's always a struggle. Oh, I know. I, I blame my parents and their parents. I don't know. Goes a long ways down. All right. So, uh, talking about managing lots of code. Um, why don't we uh, get into that subject and and talk about that? Well, and, and I do have something to confess right off the bat, Justin, is that, um, you know, I've I basically been cheating on you guys. You know, I I, uh, I have to admit, I, I do go on other podcasts at times. And in fact, um, I purposely planned um, to do the, the um, your, your rival, basically, um, the Adventures in Any Other podcast last week. But it was with a purpose, um, which is actually to your benefit, which is, that um, you know, uh, last week, if you want to listen to it, I will put up a link for it, uh, cross promotional thing. Um, I, I brought on one guy I know that is a big monorepo fan, is using it all over the place, and and he was kind of promoting that uh, really well. Whereas this time, um, you know, I, I wanted to uh, talk with Gleb about this same topic because Gleb is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, um, whereas. Uh, you know, you, you hear companies like Google and uh, Facebook starting to use these kind of monorepos and larger repos for all of their code and find out kind of way, interesting ways of doing that. Um, Gleb is, is very much on the side of keep everything small and tight, um, you know, and, and smaller, more isolated repos, more uh, that can be easily shared and kind of open sourced. So um, the... Uh, I can give like a little bit of a background of like where this all came about at first, but I, I really wanted to um, 
focus today on talking about the underlying problems with managing large sets of code, uh, regardless of how you organize it, and then the kind of advantage and disadvantages mm -hmm. of using either kind of these larger repos versus kind of breaking things up and, and doing a bunch of smaller repos. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's certainly a challenge I think that we face in, in terms of starting new projects or even with our existing projects of organizing that and, and working on that. And yeah, I, I can't wait for some answers for you two to tell us which way well, to do it. Gleb is definitely the one who has the answers. So let, let me just uh, like give, give the preface and, the, and then of it and then I'll kind of throw it over to him. Uh, so like the, the, the preface for this problem is that it's something that I think all of us have had from at one point or another. Um, you know, whenever you're working on a project with other people, which most of us are at some point or another, and it's something where you have multiple modules and, and there's stuff that are, is shared. You know, you have two apps, let's say, that are using a common code, like maybe you uh, have a web app and a native app and they both need, want to share some code or even two services that want to share uh, the same code. Um, and you have a high rate of change. Like it, it's one thing if it was a static code base that you never modify, but if it's something that on a daily basis, everybody is checking in code, um, sort of a combination of all those factors uh, leads ultimately and almost inevitably to a lot of issues because it's a challenge trying to do all of that um, without adversely affecting the individual productivity of um, different users. Um, and there's, uh, I, I sort of, in a blog post that I kind of wrote and just published that we can include a link to, I, I go over kind of the different categories of problems um, that you might run into. Um, but I, I'd be interested in, in kind of uh, throwing it over to Gleb to, to get his take on this as well. Um, well, certainly. So I, I want to start with saying that I used to work at companies that required monorepos. And the largest company where I worked where that enforced monorepo was MathWorks. And MathWorks is around 1,500 developers using a single performance database, right? Everyone gets Perfect. all the source code. Perfect. Right, performance, right? <laughs> um, and they actually had a dedicated, and I forget how many people, one or two dedicated engineers to just managing performance, right? And doing migrations and making backing up the data. And so it was a giant pyramid. So you had individual developers submitting code that goes up the chain and then gets tested and then propagates down. But doesn't propagate down immediately. It kind of goes all the way up to the root and then everything propagates. And it became so bad that at some point, if you're sitting at the departments that work closely together, think like server and UI, you had to wait for like six weeks for this change to propagate, to get tested, and then propagate to the you know, neighbor department. And of course, everyone took shortcuts. Everyone literally like, hey, here's a patch. Just put it in your branch right away. It will pro propagate eventually, but here's my code. So absolutely massive obstacle to any day-to-day -day task. And, um, you know, I worked at startups after that. And, you know, again, single code base, Here's our whole Python code. Here's, it includes our front end. It includes all our little data ingestion tools. Everything you get at once. 
And again, to, uh, to me, for example, trying to work on a small part meant I have to install a couple of different versions of databases, a couple of different versions or specific version of Python. And by the time I'm done, I'm like, well, what was I trying to do? Oh, I was trying to modify something on the front end. I already forgot it, right? Because I spent a day finagling you know, the environment so I can actually get the code and build it. And as a personal conviction, I now try to use as small of repositories as possible. Like literally one module, right? And the golden rule that I use myself is if you can describe the purpose in a single sentence without using words like and, or, in case, right? So it should, always should be like, it's a database layer. It should not be, it's a database and front end, right? So really focus purpose, something that you can put in an NPM package description or like in a Git repo or uh, GitHub repo description. So I'm, I literally advocate splitting the code to the smallest unit possible. And, but we can talk about problems like why we're not doing that. Right? Why Monorepo actually works for so many organizations. And we've been arguing with Jeff about this over lunch and you know, kind of going back and forth. But uh, we can talk about specific examples. But one example that I think everyone's familiar with in this uh, community is Angular GitHub repo itself. Right? If you open GitHub repo and you look at the amount of files, and then you took, take a look at some specific scripts like pull approve, right? There's dot pull approve YAML file. And then you see this logic, right? Certain people are like, kind of trying to direct the pull request responsibilities to different departments all inside this MANA repo. And you might think this is normal, but that kind of logic that actually separates, you know, different parts of a MANA repo is everywhere. Take a look at uh, another good file is build that shell script. If you can understand how to build this repository, like I think no one, not a single person can actually understand that. And that's just a top level shell script. The actual code for everything is inside the uh, uh, scripts folder. And if you look inside scripts folder, you have tons of files all related to building this mono repo. And here's the problem that I think that the MANA repos or large repositories specifically have that a small repository doesn't have. You have all this extra logic for picking certain files that you want, for example, to lint. You have this logic for selecting files that you want to test. You have this logic for selecting packages that you want to install. And all this logic, right, is usually in custom build scripts that no one tests, no one refactors, because it's still, you know, internal piping, internal build tools. Now, people try to create tools that actually remove a need for custom build scripts. If you look at, take a look at Lorna, right, the tool for maintaining mana repos, it's an excellent tool specifically trying to replace all your custom build scripts. But in every mana repo I've seen and I work with, there was tons of this glue code that's unreliable, undocumented, ad hoc, someone wrote it to solve specific need, 
And it's also a problem that you wouldn't have if you actually split the code and modularized, because you would never, never have to select. So this is my kind of longest, uh, longish introduction to my kind of view. And uh, uh, let's discuss. So, so, so now that you've heard from the hater, let me just quickly balance that before uh, you guys ask any other questions, which is that uh, you know, I love how opinionated Gleb is. Um, and, and I think that he, the way that he handles all of these problems is really awesome and like innovative. Um, but the thing that I've found by uh, being a little bit more balanced and, and kind of uh, uh, seeing things from the other side or whatever and talking to a lot of people that love, absolutely love working with monorepos um, is that typically the problems that you know we can talk about are, are universally recognized. Um, but there are different solutions. So like it is very true some of the stuff that Club's talking about that is a uh, you know issues with monorepos, but a um, you know as he sort of alluded to, companies like Google do create tooling to kind of handle those, um, which it's arguable whether that tooling is good or not. Some people think yes, some people think no. But then also on the flip side, um, the inverse, uh, there are issues with doing a lot of like smaller repos, like a lot of challenges that you don't have with a monorepo. And I think um, you know, on, on your side, Glob, you didn't get into that, but you've done a lot of work in, in tooling that you've created to handle those issues on the kind of like many repo side of things. That's true. Every time someone brings a problem, right, it's, it's I don't want to be a hater like you called me. I want to be a positive, constructive hater, right? Someone who says, where's the problem? And I hate it, uh, but here's my solution. So if we kind of take a step back, there is definitely a problem of working on a piece of code and then committing it and integrating into a larger system, right? And inside the monorepo, that problem is upon you to do at the, you know, at the same time, right? So it means that every time you change a little piece of code, you run all the tasks and that makes sure that the integration happens right away. You're not breaking anything else. It's on you before you commit code or before you push code or before you actually open pull requests to make sure that you haven't broken anything inside this monorepo, which is a good thing, right? Keeps the monorepo or large system consistent. But I think it actually introduces a lot of complexity because it ties these two things together. You cannot modify a small piece of code without thinking how it affects everything else. And I definitely feel that it kind of spreads my attention. Instead of concentrating on a small thing and on a solution to a particular problem, I have to think about, oh, and also, what if I run it in this environment or in this particular edge case? So I think it actually makes it harder to modify code. But I have to do it. Otherwise, I cannot commit. It will not pass the large you know, build step. By splitting the code apart, I believe, you can separate this problem. You can keep modifying the API, for example. You can modify the code. But the problem of integrating it into a larger system now is a separate step. Now it's dependency update. Right now, you want to from a larger system. You can say, "Okay, I know you kind of kept working in your separate repository, and you released ten different versions. 
Now I think it's time to integrate. And let's see which versions actually work or which versions break and I cannot integrate it. So you kind of split this problem of working on a piece of code from integrating it back into the system. And that integration step can be automated because it's really a very simple thing, right? It's, hey, install a new version, run your test, see if it breaks or not. Right? If it breaks, well, try maybe next version and see if it works or not. Uh, so I did write a couple tools. One of them is Next Update that I use all the time, that I use to automate uh, dependency upgrades. Right? Basically, you run Next Update, it checks all the available NPM package versions, runs your test with new version, passes, okay, keep the new version. If it breaks, revert to, to old version, no harm, done. Um, there are tools that automate that for your packages like greenkeeper.io. It's a service, you can turn it on for your repository, and when there are dependency upgrades, it gets triggered, and it creates a pull request that says, okay, there's a new version of package X that you're using, do you want to merge, you know, here the test, the pass. And now there are tools that actually automate the greenkeeper. There's a tool called greenkeeper keeper that if a test pass, just you know, accepts the pull request. And you can define some logic saying only accept pull request if there is a test coverage or from trusted you know, repositories, not for everything. There is a project called Renovate that does everything for you. So it replaces Greenkeeper and Greenkeeper Keeper Keeper. And those tools kind of work like Avalanche. You know, there is one package releasing a dependency triggers, updates, and tests for everything on, that depends on it, which is fine. I myself kind of have, how should I say, uh, I prefer a slow burner approach, like slow and steady wins the race. So I have a next update, Travis, that you can use. Uh, basically, you turn a cron job on Travis, that's now available. And so it checks updates weekly, monthly, you know, pretty infrequently. And if updates pass, it actually pushes a new code. Uh, so your updates never go out of date that bad. But there are a couple of caveats with what you're saying, Gleb. I mean, number one, it depends on you having really strong unit tests um, because you know the thing that he's describing is basically so. To, actually, taking a step back, so the pain we're talking about is that when you have separate repos and you check in, you know, version of one of the downstream dependencies, you got to bubble that up, right? And so the monorepo, it's very, that's like one thing that's super easy because it's all right there and you just check it in all in one PR at one, one time. With multiple repos, if you don't have any additional tooling, it's crazy painful because, uh, especially when you have a large number of repos, because then if you didn't have any tooling, you'd have to like submit like a dozen different PRs and like just for like bubbling up that change. So what Gleb's talking about is actually extremely helpful for automatically doing that, um, but it relies on the fact that you have to have super strong unit tests for each of your um, dependencies in each of your modules so that it will validate that it works and then upgrade it if it does, or if it breaks, then it will stop and you have to deal with it. Um, but that's absolutely true, Jeff. But you have to have tests in any case, right? Well, some people would argue that. <laughs> Jeff, is Jeff advocating against unit tests here? <laughs> no, I'm not advocating. I'm just saying the reality of the situation that, I, okay, for, for the panel here, 
do you guys honestly say that, that you would uh, be able to trust the repos that you create that um, in this type of situation to like bulletproof do like essentially automatic updates of dependencies? Like, do you think you would trust that? Do you think that you'd trust your tests in a big mono repo? You can't well, answer, answer a question with a question. Can't you? I think my point is that I think it's the same no matter which that you have to rely on your tests, whether or not they're all in the same repo or if they're in multiple repos. Well, but the difference is that theoretically with a mono repo, you would, um, you would, t you would run. So granted, okay. Yes. You, you would run the tests all the same. Um, but I guess it's, it's perhaps just easier to deal with like the little issues that come up rather than kind of dealing with it asynchronously. Um, because, because when, let's say there is a problem and you have to kind of like backtrack it. So like you start bubbling up a change, let's say, let's say there is a fundamental issue at like a downstream dependency and actually glad I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. So let's say there's something like three or four levels deep and uh, you have to like bubble it up before like a, a much higher level thing tests with it and it fails and it ends up that that like way lower level dependency has to make a change. Um, so how does that propagation occur like all the way back down? Like with, that's one thing for sure with a, a mono repo I know is, is easier, but uh, it seems like it could be a pretty complicated process. I mean, theoretically, if you had good tests, then the inputs and outputs are standardized and it should work. But, you know, if, if it's like an integration test where it's got, you know, uh, a real world scenario and not just, you know, testing units of code, I can see like that, that gets into a lot more hairy of a situation like you were talking about. Another thing that I was thinking while you were talking is you would have to have much better tests in a, in a uh, non-mono repo. What are we calling that? Uh, uh, micro, micro. You would have to have much more better tests in a micro repo in order for that test to work because you're not able to test full execution. Well, and one of the things that I question on that is um, what about when I have one of my dependencies is a service that returns data and that shape of that data is going to change. And I know I need to change that. Right. And it's not so much of a, I like, I know I need to change my UI repo to map to the new service repo that's making the change. And how do I tie those things together and, and plan a deployment of that and, and the synchronicity of that? Right. Um, so first of all, I want to agree with Mike agreeing with me. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Um, uh, so, uh, let, let me ad address things you know, separately. So one of them, one of the hard points is how do you know that you have good tests, right? But, but this problem happens both from monorepo and microrepos. You have to have good tests. And I noticed that I actually can write better tests in microrepos, and I'll tell you why. Let's say, uh, you know, you're using Mocha in, in your project. And then you hear about this new framework for testing called Jest. And you want to try Jest, right? If you have a large repository, it's extremely hard to actually try new tools because you have to plug in into this existing 100-step build script already, that exists already, that's kind of layered, that is, has this 
almost like a Rome-like layer of historical artifacts that no one understands. And you're trying to add this new tool. And when immediately people will complain, why are you bring another unit testing framework? Will we have Mocha? Why are you trying Jest? What are the benefits? Can you switch everything to Jest? We don't want to maintain two tools, right? That's what first comment that people will say is that don't try this new tool or switch the old tool and replace it completely, which is impossible to do for large projects, right? You never want to replace tools. So it's actually much easier for me to try a new tool on a smaller project and evaluate it, maybe replace all the tests there. And what happens is that right now, let's say I have a couple hundreds NPM packages. I have Mocha, I have Ava for some, I have Jest, I have my own personal testing framework on all different projects having different tools. That means that as a, as a developer, I you know I'm familiar with all the tools and for a next project, I can pick the one that I actually like. And if for a particular project, I feel like my tests are not going into you know, deep enough, I can replace, for example, Mocha with Jest, have you know, Jest dumb, and actually write better tests for that particular framework, which is harder to do in a large repository. On a side note, do you like Jest? <laughs> I'm OK with Jest. I'm not in love uh, with Jest. I, I actually, I did like snapshots. Um, so strongly, but I actually wrote two snapshot utilities myself already. So if you use Mocha, you can use my snapshot utility and just have snapshots. Um, especially Justin, for you, um, like you, you made a comment, what if you, my, the shape of my data changes and I have to kind of upgrade both API and the UI, right, two repositories. So first of all, there's a schema shot that I wrote, but you can actually snapshot the schema of API responses and not the actual data. So you can you know, test against that. But I do agree that sometimes you, you know, all these changes have to kind of go hand in hand, right? So to do that, and in the case of multi-repository, uh, first of all, I have to say I'm using semantic release for everything, right? There's a project called semantic release. It's a nice little CLI tool. You run it once. And it, it adds, adds, adds a dev dependency that looks at your commit history. And if there are semantic commits saying new feature, new fix, it will actually publish a new version automatically from your CI once the test passes. I use it like religiously. It's, it's, it's the best tool that completely automates NPM publish, publishing for me. But that tool has nice plugin system. And so there is a plugin that I wrote before semantic release on CI, it can actually check downstream dependencies and see if a new version breaks them or not. So let's say you're releasing a new UI version and you want to make sure it actually works with the downstream, you know, your server project that consumes it. Before NPM publishes, semantic release will actually run the test on a downstream dependency with your new source code. And it will see if you're breaking. Right? So CI can actually test before it publishes a new version if it's compatible with your current API users. And now just to go back to, again, Mike agreeing with me, you have to have your good unit test, right? And it's hard. And it's hard to see all, uh, predict all the situations 
and all the possible users for your modules or all the possible edge cases. Um, so what I've done for next update was, let's say you're testing a, a version upgrade of Lodash, going from, I don't know, 4.1 to 4.122. The next update, when it tests a new version upgrade, it will anonymously send the result saying, I tested Lodash and I tried to upgrade from 4.1 to 4.121, and I failed, or I succeeded. And I run a little Heroku application that has been running for like three years without restarting, which is unbelievable. But just keeps the, those aggregate stats. So anyone who's trying to upgrade Lodash from 4.1 to 4.11 will see a result saying, hey, 100 people tried upgrading, and let's say 75% succeeded. Now, we don't know which particular features of Lodash they tried to upgrade. But on aggregate, we kind of have the statistics across you know, the internet. If you're trying to upgrade from this version to the next version of Lodash, here's what you should expect, right? And you can kind of judge and say, hey, I don't have good tests for Lodash. Maybe I'm not exercising, maybe I'm, but maybe I'm using just a function. So most likely from these people's experience, my upgrade will also succeed, right? So you can whitelist, blacklist upgrades, and you can also use statistics from other people trying to upgrade to kind of judge and say, hey, I don't trust to automatically upgrade this dependency. Maybe I want to write more tasks in this particular area. But my tests pass, and our people seem to be upgrading happily. So maybe I should trust this upgrade. So as you can see, like, Gleb actually ha seems like he has an answer to everything. But I think I have something that can stump him. I, I was talking to Pascal, okay, earlier, um, and some of you guys know that Pascal's been working on uh, machinelabs.ai, like a way of um, basically building uh, machine learning or, or writing machine learning uh, algorithms, you know, online. It's a really cool project. Definitely check it out. Um, and so he was talking about how they just moved to a monorepo, okay, and it was specifically for a problem which I'm interested to hear, like how you would solve this. So they had exactly, like, they, they followed the Gleb philosophy, okay? Had, like, many small, tiny, tiny modules. And the issue was, because we're talking about machine learning, which is not very easily testable, and you don't really know when something got screwed up until, like, later on, usually, um, what happened was they would run into a problem where they knew it was, it was messed up. And uh, so they had to like go backwards to see when did it get messed up, right? And so you could, um, you know, for like the main deployable um, website, you can, or the main deployable uh, thing, you can like go back and you could find that version. Okay, that's great. So you know between this version and this version, it broke. The problem was that then you have to go back through all its dependencies and you see like, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily, there were potentially updates with the dependencies that occurred that the um, main deployable app did not take. So it wasn't just a matter of looking between version four and three of the main deployable. It was also looking within that all of the, of the version changes that occurred for all the different dependencies and figure out what combination of different, like because you're trying to find the, the, the core module that changed that, that caused this problem. And so they had a couple of these like really hairy problems where it took them like days to like track down what was the module that, that changed that actually caused this problem? 
Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's because machine learning is kind of uh, non-deterministic and like they had to like just like re rerun their tests and that type of thing, um, their, their, their training al algorithm, um, training data set. But, um, but still, so, so this type of thing, uh, I, I'd be interested if, if you uh, have thoughts or thought about this, uh, Gleb. Um, so it seems to me that machine AI are not using package dependency log file, right? Where for a dependencies and every time you install it, you get different bunch of deep dependencies. Uh, am I right to say that? Where they could not figure out yeah. which particular combination was installed and, and did not work. Yeah, there's a deployable package and, and that has like a bunch of downstream dependencies and it doesn't necessarily get updated with every version number of the lower downstream dependencies. Uh, it's okay. So I, I, it's a common problem in NPM world, right? That's why we have, you know, package lock that doesn't really work well. That's why we have yarn lock files. It also doesn't work very well. So as a personal rule, I lock down and I save exact versions of my top level dependencies. I cannot control the downstream, right? I cannot control what my dependencies do under the hood. Uh, but there are tools that actually giving an install tar and, and zip your NPM dependencies and so you can commit them into GitHub repo if you really want to lock them down, right? So you don't install anything. But uh, the problem of immutable and repeatable versioning is, is a huge problem. Right now, NPM doesn't really solve this. I would say for anything that you want to really install in a repeatable manner, instead of building NPM artifacts, you really want to build something stricter, right? Something like Docker containers. Like Machine AI should really build a container, put it in Docker Hub, private repository, and then it's a repeatable installation for any client. And you can do it you know, as often as you want. You can trace it back to try different versions of different you know, Docker images. Um, but I think this is a, a good point that you bring it up, is that we have to separate the code and the GitHub history and the GitHub original code from the build artifact that's version, that's stored separately, but you can just install without building it again and again. And um, in Monorepo, you kind of say, yeah, I can repeat the build by checking out that commit tag, but it doesn't really solve the problem of dependencies that you install after that, right? So you would still have this problem where you're not really locking down, it's still hard to, to trace that problem, you're just pushing it away from your GitHub repository, but it still can happen. Um, well, that's true, but I think that, uh, at least my experience is that a majority of the issues is with your own code, not uh, the external code, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, let, let's agree to disagree, but the problem of third-party dependencies and locking it down is, is a huge problem. and. Uh, uh, my only suggestion is to save exact version, at least for your top level dependencies, hoping that nothing funky will go on when someone else installs it and will get some third party dependency. Um, there is now, one. When you say top level dependencies, are you talking about top level dependencies that you don't own? Because you could have top level dependencies that you do certainly own. 
Right, right. So I'm, I'm saying that in my package, that JSON file, any top-level dependency will have exact version. No tildes, no wildcards, no hat symbols for both dependencies that I own and I don't own. The dependencies that I own will do the same, and so on and so on. But the dependencies I don't own probably will not have this on, and probably will have some something like a tilde or a hat. So those things could have transient uh, bugs and will not lead to the same installation every time you run npm install. For those, you can definitely use you know some kind of manual. Um, I forgot the name of a package. Uh, which basically, it installs tars, and you can actually commit those files. So instead of dependency installation, it will just use a local tar that you control. Uh, but it's kind of nasty. I don't want to commit tar files into a GitHub repository. By the way, I definitely do not agree to disagree. I, I am uh, adamantly against that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it, I agree one. With you. <laughs> um, but, but one other thing I just really quickly want to mention with uh, Gleb had mentioned before, or, or touched on rather, is that part of this whole discussion too is a cultural thing. You because. Um, you know, when you talk about the, the thing Gleb was mentioning uh, about, you don't want to stop people from trying out Jest versus a different thing, right? And, and you want to allow people to just do different things in different repos. That isn't necessarily true for all environments. Like some people actually, as a cultural thing, as like they've made a decision for their organization or for their um, you know, workplace, that they actually do want everybody very specifically to go in lockstep, and that's like an important part of what they and they wanting. And I know that like Gleb hates that, and like a lot of us uh, may, may. But um, there's it's not um, there's some value in that um, that it does slow some rate of change things down, but it does create certain consistencies um, that for certain organizations you know is. Uh, really valuable. So, in some sense, um, you know, not everything because there's a lot of different aspects to this. But in some sense, at least for the um, aspect of allowing um, people to change whatever they want for individual repos when it's like separate repos versus having a mono repo and everybody staying in lockstep for like you, everybody's using Jest or everybody's using this build tooling um, is a decision at an organization level, um, not necessarily an absolute. This is better than the other. I have a question for both of you. So obviously you're both on opposite ends of the spectrum here, but that's not to say that there isn't any gray area in the middle. What about the idea of having mono-ish repos that have multiple pieces of functionality inside of it that's boundaried maybe based off of like execution environment, maybe like front end or back end or server versus database. Um, and instead of doing a pure micro approach or a pure mono approach, but maybe some sort of hybrid approach? Um, so what would be an example, right? Like uh, a single mono repo with all your front end code and all the front end apps? Yeah, like maybe all of your, well, across app boundaries. I mean, if you have multiple front end applications, they would be in separate repos, mm -hmm. but um, obviously in your front end, maybe you have your, um, HTTP access or your remote access uh, separate from, you may, as you, you do it in your separate repos, may have that separated from the actual presentation logic. Um, 
I, I, I think Jeff is right. If it works for your team. Okay, you, you don't have to say anything more. Just leave it at that and we can end the show. I, so to be honest, I recently, three months ago, I joined a company called Cypress.io. Right before I joined, um, they put all their uh, application testing code for the, for the Cypress app into a single mana repo. So it's literally composed out of 12 or, or 10 individual, used to be uh, individual uh, repos. Now it's a single mana repo because we're open sourcing it. Like the whole desktop end-to-end -end testing tool that's awesome. And it, it will happen in the next, you know, during this month. So my last three months, I've been working on a mana repo, right? I don't hate it. It's actually pretty fast work. We do have, you know, a couple thousand of tests. We, we have a complicated circle CI build that paralyzes everything. We have uh, automated publishing of documentation and scraping. So whatever makes your team happy and optimizes for development productivity, that's what you should work with, right? If it's a hybrid kind of gray area, if, if, if the project is still small, but maybe grown just a little bit, keep it together, right? Do not split it until you actually have an actual need, until you think that's a bottleneck, until... For me, the biggest problem with Monoripos personally is that it optimizes for a couple of very experienced users. For users that already bootstrapped the repo once, that actually downloaded everything and now they just come every morning and they open the project and it's working. It doesn't optimize for someone downloading, installing it and trying to change one little thing from scratch because there are so many things that, that you have to do. It's a complex you know, environment. It has services, it has tools. You probably have to you know, do it only on Tuesday because otherwise it's not installed. Right? So it actually optimizes for power users. And I strongly believe that we should write more software that optimize for initial experience, that optimize for, hey, I just want to install and run it. Or I just want to install and try it out. Or maybe there is a bug. Can I actually install it and recreate it locally? So I'm trying to optimize for that experience. If your project is still small enough that you can easily do that, if installation doesn't take you know, three days with someone else sitting by your side and kind of telling you what to do when you get stuck, I think you're fine. And um, I know, Jeff, your code is optimizes for quick installation and testing. I mean, you could argue that you're still going to have all those hurdles to set up with micro repositories, too. It's not like Mono is, in fact, you could argue, argue the other way, because if I have a micro repositories, I have to like clone them all down in like a specific folder and structure and they all got to be, you know, install their dependencies, et cetera. So, I mean, you could argue the same thing for micro there. But, but Austin, majority of times, right, it's just git clone, go to that folder, npm install, npm test, like npm it. It's a single command, right? That's what I optimize for. Like, it should just work. But like better optimization. And I think it's pretty easy to do for micro packages, right? Even if there are some environment specific things, it's much easier to do for micro repository than for uh, a larger one. And so I'm trying to optimize for, for developer experience, 
But I just want to quickly go into emotional uh, argument, right? I'm going to skip the religious one, but for emotional uh, appeal. I always feel happy when I finish something, right? Don't we all, right? Once something complete, you feel great, you move on. And I feel with a small manner repos, I can actually finish things. Imagine a large repository, right? Look at Angular. It has how many issues it has right now? 1,600. There are 240 pull requests, right? Angular as a repository, as a project, will never be done. Never. Not even close. Your particular thing that you do today or you work for a week makes one tiny percent of difference. With a small repos, I can document something and I'll be done with documentation because it's that small. I can just maybe put documentation in the readme file. I can write tests and achieve 100% coverage if that's what I want. And I'll be done and, you know, emotionally, I'm done. It's finished. I feel great. And I can move to another repository and complete that. With a so, larger project, it's always ongoing. It's never finished. I never have closure. And in JavaScript, you want to have closure. So I have a question about that, because I like closure too, and I like getting to that point, right? But like, what about the friction of starting that? So in a case where we have, um, I'm going to work on a small bit in the profile screen of an Angular application, right? But that has a dependency on the authentication service, on dependency on the data service, right? So what do I need to do as a developer to get up and going in that? Like if we have, like if we have a monorepo, I have that possibility of saying, I just pull monorepo, I could have a, a run script in there in that monorepo that sits as part of it that I can run and, and kicks off my environment locally to have all the pieces I need to work on that piece. But if I have these in an individual repos, I have to know, like Austin was saying, which ones to pull down, right? I have to know which ones to start up. And is that something that I do at a command line for each individual one? Or do we have some other repo that is like the tool that starts up that environment for me? And like, so, so how do you, how do you help? How do you handle that friction for a developer when you have the separate repos? So what I would strive for is to have something that you can clone and install dependencies using, let's say, npm install. And when you test, if they rely on other services, should mock those, right? If it depends on some kind of authentication service, right, that usually is implemented in Angular, let's say, well, if you work with your little um, user service separately, then it should mock everything it, it depends on, right? I, I would really strongly prefer not to have anything else you need to run on your machine in order for you to work with your little micro repo. Um, and, what about the case, like if I want to pull that up in the browser, like I'm doing that work, and I want to pull it up in the browser and run that application. And so am I now writing code beyond just the unit test for the code, but actually writing implementation code that can swap out the endpoints and things like that so I can run that website in with not connecting to those backends. See what I'm saying for that? Yeah, but we have to look you know, at case-by-case case basis um, in this case. Testing like that is hard, right? And sometimes there is a lot of dependencies between you know, your front end and your API. And actually, marking the backend completely is seems like an overhead, right? And and would be something that requires extra effort, and would not be required if it were part of Monorepo, and you could just run everything, right? Uh, 
again, not, not to plug in Cypress, um, but when we do a development like that, Cypress, it makes it so easy to mark the backend, let's say, that we can work on the front end separately from the backend and just mark everything. And uh, the only thing there is maybe for your API to have good enough documentation so you're not marking the wrong thing. And someone working on the front end can say, oh, I'll be working against version 1.1 of my backend, and this is the API that it, it, it should provide. For now, I'll just mark it so I don't have a dependency. I don't have to run the backend 1.1 in order for me to work with front end. Um, so it's case by case, but marking is the way to go. Um, I think using a project in isolation probably is long-term a better developer experience than running a large project. Again, new technologies make, I think, even large projects and monorepos easier to work with. Think Docker, right? You can spin up everything you need, even for huge projects. 10 different databases, five different services, two different versions of Python, not a problem, right? Uh, but it's still, I believe, easier to work with a single thing that you can kind of you know, crack in your head and, and work locally and produce an artifact and then integrate rather than trying to you know, work as part of a monorepo. And actually, one thing uh, in addition to that that helps with the testing aspect of um, how you're organizing your modules is to think about trying to separate out, like, like think, what, is this something that's business logic? Is this something that is web-based? Or is this like kind of utility, kind of, uh, you know, very generic stuff? And if you like really are um, stringent about um, the way you approach this, you, there's actually quite a bit of this kind of like generic utility code that you can extract out into these modules that are very easily to very easy to like 100% unit test and have as like super strong and you almost never change them. And I think that's that's one of the keys um, to this all because if you extract out all of that and you're left with just like that business logic and maybe that like kind of like visual UI logic, um, you still have to you know there's still some difficulties in, in testing those, but at least it makes things a lot easier. It's a lot smaller and more contained. 100% um, agree with Jeff on that, 100%. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that, uh, Mike, you mentioned that I was on the other side of Gleb on this, and, and I'm actually not. I, I uh, sort of took that side in this podcast because I know Gleb is so opinionated on, on those things. But in reality, for, for, for my implementation, um, it's not maybe as far as Gleb goes. Um, but it's it's like you sort of alluded to. It's like somewhere in the middle. You know, we we started with something where it was um, the the many small repos, uh, sort of like the the Gleb way of doing things. And uh, perhaps we we would have stuck with that longer if I had uh, done a better job back then of of uh, utilizing his many millions of libraries that he's created. But <clears throat> we we we've started to over time um, go to a hybrid where we have groupings of modules that we know, like over time we've seen like, okay, most of the time when we're making changes, we make changes to these sets of modules together. Like they're like kind of a grouping of, um, you know, either for based off of a particular service or a particular set of utilities. Um, so right now we have uh, six, uh, I wouldn't call them monorepos, like six, like uh, we should probably come up with a different name for this. I'll have to eventually, uh, of like, you know, it has like a couple different modules within it that are somewhat related. And, and that 
has been better. There's still some problems. I don't think that we're um, we're definitely not like satisfied yet. And part of what I'm trying to do in the uh, coming um, months, as I continue to kind of like dwell on this this topic, is to eventually come up with like a good um, decision framework for how, based off of your current environment and your needs and your team, um, what what's the kind of most optimal setup like? And, and most of the time, it's going to be one of these hybrid, um, you know, between you know one thing and another. And what what's the the tool stack you should use, etc. Um, so it's not something that I, I have yet, but um, I, I did uh, start to write a blog post on this and and kind of going to continue on this in the coming months. Bonnie, you've been quiet. What do you think? Sorry, I had to get off mute. Uh, I wish that I could have gone back and taught this all stuff to myself like three years ago. If I could send myself a link to this video three years ago and like think through all this stuff, because this, these are all problems that I had and I wish that I had had this insight three years ago would have been perfect. But yeah, this is, it's really good stuff because I know there are other people that are, that are coming up that haven't had time to think through all this and, and it's just uh, good to be able to fast forward them and yeah, it's good stuff. It's stuff that you don't really learn until you get into it. And once you have a large application, then you learn all this stuff kind of after the fact. I'm, I'm curious, what are you guys' thoughts on microservices? So we, we're talking about... <laughs> you want to start another show. That's another episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I was actually just... This was... I was about to just say this because I see a lot of parallels between the ideas of small little repositories and small little microservices versus a mono repo or a big monolithic application. There's a lot but of parallels not, there. Not, and in terms of where you're handling the DevOps portion of it. There are parallels, but just to be clear, like it's not exactly the same because you can actually do microservices in a mono repo. Um, but yeah, I, no, I hear you. I feel like I like microservices. I, I like to have everything uh, encapsulated, you know, small pieces that you can that you can use. But that's just my preference. All right. So somebody find somebody that wants to talk about microservices. We'll have them on as a guest. We'll do a whole other show on it. I think there's plenty of room for that. But this one we need to wrap up because we're at the top of the hour. So uh, let's do that. Um, Jeff, I know Jeff has to head out real quick. So uh, Jeff, do you have a pick you want to shout out here real quick before we wrap up? Yeah, I got two quick, two picks. Um, so I'm going to post the link here, but I did publish a blog post today talking about some of the problems. That there's, there's some stuff that we didn't even get to today. Um, so if you want to understand the underlying problem, like related to, you know, basically uh, working with shared code and, and how you organize your code repositories, I sort of lay it out in this blog post, and then I'm going to do a couple more in the, in the following weeks um, that you could follow me on Medium. Um, to get that. And then the other thing is that, uh, that I'll post a link for is that I put out there a couple weeks ago um, that I want to bring up again is a survey to try to understand what you, uh, meaning you, everybody listening, um, utilize in your environment. Like everybody deals with this issue or some aspect of this issue. And I want to get a, a sort of understanding of what's the setup in your environment. Um, so I, I'll post a link to that and please, you know, it just takes like literally a couple minutes. It's only four questions. Um, and then I'll, I'll post a blog post with the results of that in a couple weeks. 
Awesome. Awesome. So are you bouncing right now? Yes, si, senor. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Everybody say thanks, Jeff. Thanks, thanks Jeff. Okay. So the other picks. Uh, Glad you want to, you have some picks? Uh, sure. So I want to pick my company because, well, they pay my salary. And we're also open sourcing a tool pretty soon. It's called Cypress.io. It's a tool for end-to-end -end testing of your web application or web apps. Uh, it's not framework specific. You can test anything. You can even run your unit test if you want to. Has mocking of requests, has full access to your cookies, anything you want uh, there. You can see the results right away in your browser. You can have video screenshots. You can inspect the dump before and after. We invested in the last two months 40% of engineering time in updating and rewriting the docs because the docs is what makes the tool you know, great. And so anyone who wants to test their website or web apps, Angular, whatever you want, will have an easy time you know, doing that. Um, well, I, can attest, I can attest to Cypress. I've actually been using it myself at work. And it just so many little things that make testing painful, like build up and build down. Like it's got these things baked into it already. And it, it was a really easy experience to get a pretty complex application up and running with a dozen tests with edge cases in about a couple hours. So thanks, Austin. And you, you forgot to say it was super quick. It's much faster than Selenium because it has access to your dump. So it can actually move almost as fast as a unit test. And the second peak I want to bring up is hyperapp.js. Do not confuse with hyperterminal. Hyperapp is this tiny, tiny Elminspart framework for writing web apps. You know, you kind of bring your own view layer, but it gives you the state management that's really, really nice. And it's tiny, and there is not a single instance of this keyword that everyone argues about in JavaScript. I, I love it. It's, it just got a, a new release out. So check it out. It's really nice library or framework, if you want to call it. It's, it's tiny. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Austin. Austin, you have something? I actually do not have anything this week. <laughs> All right, you get a pass. No problem. Bonnie? I'm actually uh, pretty excited about that machine labs thing that that just got announced. Uh, my friend Pascal was working on that machine learning in a browser, if that sounds exciting to you. Uh, they just launched their private beta a couple of days ago. Uh, so that's you can go to git.machinelabs.ai or uh, blog.machinelabs.ai. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Check it out. Nice. So we're working uh, to get them on the show here uh, a future episode to come talk about that. So don't have a date yet, but hopefully that'll be figured out soon. and. Check out that one. Awesome, uh, Mike, you got anything? Just one. Um, I was a little surprised, I think it was yesterday uh, when it first popped up, but for, at least for me, and today um, I really noticed is that Chrome 60 now supports Touch Bar. Uh, so you get some nice little uh, Chrome pieces there in your Touch Bar if you happen to have a uh, newer MacBook with Touch Bar. The first thing I did, I recently got a new Mac with a Touch Bar. The first thing I did, was reprogram those buttons to where I could have the word step in, step out, step over. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's an app called HyperTouch or something like that. I'll link it. 
There's Austin's pick. I think, for the day. Yeah, <laughs> you just found a pick. <laughs> oh, so that's perfect. So you made some new function keys then? Yeah, it lets you basically, uh, you can reprogram the touch bar to launch macros like F10 or whatever, or any type of application. You can also put like logos on it. So I've got the little step in, step out uh, images there. So it was, it was super handy. That's like the first thing I did was, how do I get rid of these stupid buttons and get the dev tools on here? So you got like a macro that runs the F9 function key because the F9 function key doesn't exist in the same place where the F9 function key was. But now you got a nice icon for it, right? Yeah, and it says step in with a cute icon. It's it's super cool. Here, here's a here's a picture of it. Uh, see, that's what we do. We solve problems, right, with code. Perfect. It's called Better Touch Tool. All right, cool. Okay, my pick is Dave Geddes came out with another awesome little video showing how to do some CSS HTML stuff. Uh, this time he's taking the Legend of Zelda inventory screen and replicating that uh, in markup. That's pretty cool. So that's my pick. Um, some that's fun an stuff. awesome pick. He's so fun. Yeah, uh, that's fun little you know um, task to do to kind of get into doing working on a little bit of code, but having a, a fun visual thing to do it with, and an example and a guide and kind of a mock up to go off of. You know, you don't have to come up with that. You just kind of go, okay, I want to implement this mock up sort of thing. Um, and it kind of, well, it it spurred me to buy a Switch finally, and so I've been playing <laughs> Zelda every night. Um, so thanks, Dave. I uh, blame you, but uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Thanks a ton to our guest, Jeff, who already took off. And Gleb, thank you for joining us and, and giving us some more clarity on this stuff. Really appreciate you coming on and taking your time. Thank you. Love talking to you. Awesome. All right. Put a bow on it. We're done. We Thanks, will see Justin. you next week. We don't have a guest planned yet, but we'll figure something out. Have a good one. Later. <laughs>